Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. 183 countries in the world and counting. That's the number of countries in the world who recognize that there is only one China and the People's Republic of China is the sole legal government representing the whole of China. On Wednesday, China and the Pacific Island nation of Nauru signed a joint communique on the resumption of diplomatic relations. Nauru's move reduces the number of so-called diplomatic allies of the Taiwan region to only a dozen. And it is reported that uh, Tuvalu, another Pacific Island nation, will review its relations with Taiwan after the national election, which is expected to take place today. Now, including Nauru, 10 countries have cut formal ties with uh, Taiwan over the past eight years. The United States, however, expressed disappointment over Nauru's choice. Why? I'm pleased to be joined from Yaren, capital of Nauru, by Ridel Aqua, permanent secretary at the government of Nauru, by Ulei, professor at Shandong University, also chief research fellow of the Research Center for Pacific Island Countries at Liaocheng University, and from Shanghai by Joseph Mahoney, professor at East China Normal University. Gentlemen, welcome to the point. Let me go to Mr. Aqua first. It is so that we have a guest from the South Pacific Island country. So the warmest welcome and of course congratulations on the resumption of diplomatic ties between Nauru and my country. Tell us, um, is this a good news, a good development for your country, a decision that's taken by the government but supported by the people of Nauru? Thank you for having me. The announcement that the president made when he made that change to that tie from Taiwan to Nauru, uh, to the Republic of China, Participation for the country. I think it's always been inevitable that Nauru will follow suit following the United Nations resolution. Recently, when the Australian downgrade, down, throw down on the asylum seekers in Nauru, that will leave a huge gap in the budget. I would think that the government to keep stability amongst the people, they will need to fulfill the gap, that gap and they, was, it, it, they made that transition for basically for economic reasons. Well, we hear, as I mentioned, the reaction from the United States that they are disappointed. They say that Taiwan is a democracy and that the People's Republic of China often make promises in exchange for diplomatic relations, but they don't keep these promises. What is your reaction to the U.S. reaction to the decision of your country? I would think, uh, because now it's a self-autonomy, uh, U.S. might be disappointed, but uh, I would think that uh, that would be considered uh, prior to making that decision. Uh, everything has been thought out by cabinet prior to, to moving to China. Uh, even before, even before with the previous government that was, uh, where I was boosted, uh, uh, they had inclination of moving to China, and it was only a matter of time. So, but... Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what will be the impact with the U.S. to their aid, but uh, U.S. aid is much to the Micronesian side of uh, of the Pacific. We rely basically on Australia, New Zealand, and previously Taiwan. 
also our three main trading partners. So what is going to happen? What do you foresee that's going to happen to your island, to your people, to your economy, now that you resumed diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China? I would expect that the, it would not be less. It'll be much improvement. There's been promises for the infrastructure. There's much needed work to be done for the infrastructure. We haven't been able to improve our infrastructures. There is climate change. There is mitigation against climate change and sea water rise. Uh, there is uh, there is a need to revamp our, uh, our power station. The power station has been here for young years and it's been sustaining population when it hasn't reached this uh, this amount. Uh, a lot of things have changed uh, since uh, just after the war, and mostly our infrastructures uh, were built during the first era just after the war. And that, that growth has stagnated, and the population has grown. Mm -hmm. We have a hospital that can only take up 100 people. There's more people needing to go to the hospital, so that, that bed has to be vacated practically every day. If you're not well, or you're just sort of half well, you'll be vacated, so another person yeah. can occupy the bed. Okay. So the hospital needs to be revamped. Yeah. Our I see. airport, the airport has been there since, yeah. I see. So that also needs to be refurbished. Okay. So let me go to um, Professor Ulei. You are based, or you based your study on that part of the world, South Pacific Island nations. How do you look at their concerns? Their primary attention is to improve the economy, is to provide better care for the livelihood of the people, whereas some other people always see relationship through a geopolitical perspective, geopolitical lens. That's my impression. What is yours? Uh, in fact, this is uh, quite true in the Pacific Island countries that I had uh, quite a lot of international conference in Australia, in New Zealand, and in the island countries. And it made me surprised that the scholars from the United States usually impress us that they want to have the hegemonic competition in this area. But the scholars from China impress the islanders that China only wants economic cooperation with the island countries. So in fact, I could have a lot of conversations with the local governmental officials and the entrepreneurs and even the general public. My impression is they do not care about the geopolitical competition. They do not care about the hegemonic rivalry. What they care about much is their life. They want a better living standard. Mm -hmm. And they say that China has a textbook example for living its people out of poverty. If you look at China's economic growth over the last decades, you could find that China's economic growth is a miracle. So they told me they want to learn much from this China. Is, yeah. This is a problem that local people... Yeah, yeah. Professor, you, this is very interesting. Uh, however, it seems that the West, you know, led by the United States, are not providing this kind of development opportunities that these countries are needing, and yet they are blaming China for doing so. Uh, you are right. In fact, you see, the Chinese economic assistance and aid focus on the economic development and the growth and the employment. But the United States provide advice not for economic purpose, but for ideological one. It like to training uh, the island uh, officials 
just for you see the law system, the democratic values, this impressed us very much. And you know that we had the international conference, some experts, scholars from Australia was also complaining about the United States action and moves. They said, we need cooperation in the Pacific Island countries. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me go to Professor Mahoney for your take, looking from a scholarly perspective. Now, the United States, you know, highlighted the fact that Taiwan is a democracy. So now, rule by switching from Taiwan, the region, to the PRC, seems they are deviating away from democratic values. And they also talk about, you know, the China, the People's Republic of China, not keeping its promises. How do you look at these factors that the U.S. is citing to say it's disappointed with Nauru's decision? Well, I think if we judge countries in terms of fulfilling promises, I think we'll find that China, on average, does a much better job than the U.S. does. Uh, there's enough empirical evidence from BRI alone to prove this is true. Uh, above all, when we compare it with uh, America's counterproposals like Build Back Better or B3W and so on that have produced uh, next to nothing. Now, uh, on the U.S. Uh, uh, being concerned about trying to promote uh, uh, Taiwan, ex yes, expanding ties with with uh, with Taiwan, uh, you know, this is the Biden administration's approach, but it's complicated. Uh, officially, the U.S. Uh, adheres itself uh, to the one China policy and doesn't have official diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Uh, the fundamental fact is the U.S. itself balances its relationship in favor of the mainland. So why should it criticize anyone else for doing the same? Uh, furthermore, uh, there's a perception in the international community that Biden doesn't really care about Taiwan, that it's just a pawn, as, as we've noted, in a, in a geostrategic game, and that Biden would sell out Taiwan in a moment if it served his uh, or America's interest. Uh, so it's widely understood that the U.S. is serving its own strategic interest, not democratic ideals, and that countries who follow what the U.S. says they should do but doesn't actually do itself, then those countries would poison their own relations with the mainland yeah. and possibly be does sold that out explain, later if the U.S. changes course. Yeah. Professor yeah. Mahoney, does that explain that over the past years during the DPP's rule in Taiwan, 10 countries have cut diplomatic relations with the island, including Chateaume and Principe, uh, Panama, Dominican Republic, uh, Burkina Faso, El Salvador, Solomon Islands and Kiribati in the South Pacific, Nicaragua, Honduras and now Nauru. And people are talking about Tuvalu possibly following that lead. Is that the reason behind this trend, apparent trend, Professor Mahoney? Well, you know, it's, it's said in some of the press that, that Nauru was disappointed with the recent election in Taiwan and that uh, and that's reason enough, and not simply because the DPP retained the presidency, also because it did so without an absolute majority of voter support, and likewise because it lost control of the legislature. So the political situation in Taiwan is a mess, and you can't be sure which way things will go or whether it represents the will of the people. However, there have also been a number of growing and intersecting trends that are more compelling than the election result. And these include the fact that we're in this new era with new challenges, including climate change, disease outbreaks, and China has shown itself to be a more reliable international partner. Second, as we look towards the future, the U.S. is in a period of decline and keeps flip-flopping between different governance philosophies while China is stable and still rising. 
And third, China has offered the world practical development and security solutions. We're 10 years into the BRI, not, uh, BRI now with concrete results. We've got GDI, GSI, and GCI gaining momentum. And so while the U.S. continues to be committed to these older paradigms associated with cultural and financial hegemony, still engaged in armed interventions directly or through proxy wars, still expanding Cold War era, era blocks or building new ones, uh, the bottom line is that most countries are rational actors. They know that the mm -hmm. past is not the solution to the future. Yeah, they okay. need to make commitments that reflect their interest. Yeah, and certainly I believe Nauru has made that decision. Once again, congratulations to Nauru and all the very best for your development. I'm pleased to have had as my guests uh, Ridel Aqua, Permanent Secretary at the Government of Nauru, Yulei Professor at Shandong University, also Chief Research Fellow of the Research Center for Pacific Island Countries at Liaocheng University, and Joseph Mahoney, professor at East China Normal University. We have to leave it there. And when we come back, how did Canada's relations with China remain frozen while other Five Eyes countries have moved on? I talked to a Canadian scholar to find out. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Canada's China panic is handmade. A paper published earlier this month by University of Victoria's Center for Asia-Pacific Initiatives traces the roots of exaggerated concerns about China in the land of America's northern neighbor. Titled The Five Eyes and Canada's China Panic, the document points out that it all started with meetings held early in 2018 among intelligence agencies of the so-called Five Eyes countries, namely the United States, UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. The paper says that the head of the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, or CSIS, uncritically accepted U.S. accusations against China back then and informed fully the government of Canada. This led to about turns in Canada's China policies, which, coupled with racism and anti-communism, mutated over the next five years to become Canada's China panic. What exactly are the findings of the paper? How, according to the author, did Canada's official relations with China remain frozen while other Five Eyes countries have moved on, including the United States and how credible are these statements. I will be joined by the leading author of this paper, Professor John Price, Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Victoria, joining me from Havana, Cuba. But first, let's go to our guest, Professor Rong Ying, Senior Research Fellow of the China Institute of International Studies joining me from Beijing. Professor Rong, thank you very much for joining us. So um, give us uh, a picture of uh, exactly where uh, things are in terms of China-Canada relations. As we said, Australia improved its relations with China. The United States have been trying to stabilize things. Where is Canada? Well, the relationship certainly, as you rightly said, it's difficult. Uh, I'm very, and I'm very unfortunate. I think China made it very clear, as we have seen, uh, during the conversation, phone conversation between Wang Yi, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, and Canadian counterpart, that China attached importance to the relationship, but the relationship is difficult. There are a lot of work to do. I think the report uh, by Professor uh, Price. Price and his colleagues, yeah, are very much important, shedding a light and insight of what is happening 
behind. And most importantly, I think the consequences or the worrying side of the uh, uh, the dynamic in the about the changes of, the, of uh, Canadians' policy towards China. And this is, I think, a very important uh, report. I would only hope that this would start the process of reassessment or relook mm. of what happened in yeah. Canada about its relationship with China and for the region and the world as whole. Basically, the report uh, talked about whatever threat China may present to countries in the West, such as Canada, has been blown out of proportion. It talked about three kinds of threat that have been blown out of proportion. The techno threat, so-called, the viral threat, meaning China unleash this viral to the world and you know harming a lot of people and thirdly uh, the kind of uh, you know hegemonic power that China is or or military threat that China is potentially imposing and yet instead of independently verifying these threats these were just taken as facts and conveyed to the Canadian government which then incorporated these elements into making policies for the country professor Rong how do you look at that how was this china thread materialized in canada yeah that's exactly the the big question i think we want to answer we want uh, i think certainly canadians will have to answer the canadian people and the politicians have to answer because the uh, so-called china threat uh, they have been there for many years different schools variations and the china panic is relatively new but the, the sinophobia is I think very much uh, unique or special in this context where it is looks at the uh, paper would like us to know that it is very much enmeshed mm -hmm. it's very much inter I mean, uh, linked to the okay. dynamic of politics in in Canada mm -hmm. and the very question of the I mean the relevance and the vitality of Canada's uh, uh, democracy values Mm -hmm. uh, rules yeah. and the norms. How could they and the security uh, established influenced by a foreign country, even though it's an ally, to I mean make or influence the policy making of uh, of, me, in the, of independent and yeah. a sovereign state yeah, let's, uh, let's, for, with a, another important country. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hear from the leading author of the report, um, Professor John Price, joining me from Havana. Um, Professor Price, thank you very much for taking your time out for us. Uh, according to the paper, you said, as it turns out, Canada's spy agency, the CSIS, was the main source for the 2018 accusation regarding China's techno threat. What is more important, you said, however, is the means by which the CSIS determined that such a threat existed. One might expect, you said, that with thousands of employees and a billion dollar budget between them, CSIS and the CSE, which is the Canadian Security Establishment, might have come up with an independent assessment of actual challenges or threats in Canada. But instead, Canada's spy agencies relied on its counterparts in the United States. Um, do you think that is the biggest problem for the policy of Canada, especially when it comes to China? Well, thanks very much for inviting me uh, on the program. Um, as a historian, I was intrigued uh, by the fact that universities in Canada constantly remarked that 
CSIS, CSIS, the security agency, had approached them in 2018 uh, about the supposed China threat. And that piqued my curiosity because uh, the Meng Wanzhou uh, affair and the arrests of the two Canadians only occurred in December of uh, 2018, right. uh, much later. So as a historian, I was intrigued to find why did CSIS uh, make the, uh, a pitch to Canadian universities that China was such a threat. And so I followed the paper trail and indeed it went back to the CIA and FBI and to the accusations they made in front of Congress in February of 2018 that were then um, taken up by CSIS. So yes, I think that um, one of the reasons that happened is and that the uh, government accepted those ideas was that, first of all, CSIS has become much stronger uh, uh, through the war on terror and through the regimes of the uh, Harper uh, conservative government. CSIS obtained much more power uh, within government. And uh, so that was one element that led to this uh, situation. And the second was uh, the fact that the Canadian government uh, the Liberal government was uh, became a minority government in 2019 uh, and uh, was reliant on the support of the New Democratic Party in order to get legislation passed. Unfortunately, the New Democratic Party took a very hostile line towards China, uh, the government of China, uh, and, um, uh, and so as a result, uh, things uh, got worse instead of uh, getting better. So basically, you're talking about the China panic is unfounded. It's been blown out of proportion uh, because people didn't do their homework. They, they said, okay, the United States told us this is the case. And it fits our interests, so we're going to make it facts and, and tell it to the people. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I think there was uh, what is commonly uh, called threat inflation. That is, it's uh, taking a potential threat and inflating its importance uh, and uh, creating an enemy where there may be indeed uh, problems and contradictions and issues that need to be addressed between countries such as Canada and China. Uh, but then those issues are taken to represent a hostile uh, approach uh, on the part of, in this case, China, uh, viewed from the Canadian government side, from CSIS. Uh, and then, of course, we have the many uh, facets of uh, the domestic politics of what happened with the Meng Wanzhou affair, the arrests of the Michaels. We then had uh, COVID and the um, whole uh, anti-China uh, rhetoric that arose, uh, Sinophobia regarding uh, uh, COVID uh, as being uh, something, uh, a part of the conspiracy theory in terms of uh, China trying to uh, infect the world. These sorts, of, this type of nonsense was promoted a lot and uh, and then uh, after uh, the Sinophobia related to COVID and the anti-Asian racism that arose, we have all the discourse related to China as uh, being a, a, a source of political interference, which right. was pushed by CSIS, 
through CSIS leaks and then so through the media. Uh, yeah. yeah. How ridiculous. I mean, from my perspective, it is very ridiculous. But obviously, it's been um, prevalent. It's been popular especially on the media for quite some years and resulting in the very low relationship between the two sides. Only now the Canadian side is talking about trying to bring this relationship back on track, but damage has been done and it's very difficult. Yes, well, I think that what has become clear is that the Canadian government has become an outlier, uh, whereas, of Not course, the U.S., which has been the source of many of the threat inflator uh, narratives, uh, has tried to walk back some of that and reestablish uh, better relations with China. The U.S. Uh, Biden regime has sent uh, many delegations uh, and uh, President Biden and uh, China's President Xi Jinping met uh, at the APEC summit in San Francisco. Uh, but Canada has been unable to address uh, the situation and, and things have gotten worse and worse. Um, so Canada has become an outlier diplomatically. And so it's becoming clear to many people that something weird is going on. Uh, why can't Canada adjust its relations? Even though some, uh, like Melanie Jolie, who is the Minister of Foreign Affairs, is now talking about uh, trying to uh, initiate better relations with all types of governments and that we mustn't uh, divide the world up into two hostile camps. But she represents still a minority voice, unfortunately. Hmm. Well, finally, how do you defend the credibility of your report? Because you do not have inside information. You pieced up public information together. What is the credibility of your, view, of your statements? And keep it very short. Well, that's please. a good question. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I think that um, you know the uh, <clears throat> one of the main political newspapers in Ottawa is uh, reproducing uh, many aspects of the report uh, through uh, opinion pieces. So I think it has enough credibility that it's being taken seriously. Although there's a lot of people who don't agree with the report. Hmm. Well, we'll wait and see. Once again, this is a discussion paper, and people are encouraged to take a look at it and see the content for themselves. We have to leave it there. Many thanks to Professor Rongying and Professor John Price for joining us in this edition of The Point. As usual, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lucien in Beijing. You've got The Point. The mother put the porcelain spoon. The mother drew back and poured the little girl back. But the mother did not hear the old voice. The mother. Experience the heartwarming story of a mother's love that knows no bounds, titled The Mother, written by Nobel Prize winning author Pearl S. Buck. It's a story of love, sacrifice, and the universalism of motherhood that transcends race and borders, told through an account of an unnamed mother living in rural China in the early 20th century. Get the audiobook right now at radio.cgtn.com or any major podcast platform. Simply search for the Books and Beyond podcast and key in The Mother.